0: Well, before I begin, let me just pray again. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, and Lord, we ask God for your presence this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing unto you. Father, we ask, Lord, that your word will penetrate hearts this morning. Teach us your truth, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Sonny Flowers, one of the pastors here on staff at River Oaks. And if you're visiting with us this Memorial Day weekend, we just would really get, love to get to know you. If you would join us in the coffee bar out those doors, immediately following the service, we'd love to be able to enjoy a cup of coffee with you. Well, today we're continuing our study of the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings. And we're focusing on the two ministries, or the ministry of two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this showdown that Rick read from 1 Kings 18, 20 through 40. Thank you, uh, Rick, for doing that, because uh, he's got the voice of God. I figured it would be really good to have that deep voice share this powerful story. Because, see, in this story, we see the display of God's power in exposing and crushing the false god but I'm going to say Baal. i said Baal for 30 years. We in the south, y'all, it's Baal, okay? <laughs> you can say Baal or whatever, but I'm going to say Baal. Is that all right? You know, last year, me and Trish had the opportunity to go with some dear friends to Israel for a tour. and It was a life-changing experience. And during this time, we were in the hills of Galilee, and we were descending down to the Jezreel Valley floor. We were going to, to a tour at Tel Megiddo. And Mount Carmel was in the distance. We couldn't see it because it was a very cloudy, hazy day. However, I was, I was just in awe at the Jezreel Valley floor. It was so green and fertile. It was full of crops as far as you could see. And after being there and seeing the land, it really made this story come alive to me. And I pray that that happens to you this morning, that this story comes alive in your hearts as we look at the events that happened on Mount Carmel. If you'll look overhead, this is a picture of Mount Carmel today, and you can still see they're still growing crops there. It is still fertile. This mountain range is located in the northwestern part of Israel, and it stretches from the Mediterranean Sea towards the southeast. The name of Mount Carmel means... God's vineyard because it was so lush. The highest point there is about 1,800 feet above sea level. Now this event happened, as tradition has it, on the lower part of Mount Carmel because there was springs located there. God uses these events at Mount Carmel to teach his people then and to teach us now about his power and his grace. So this morning, as we look more closely at the story, I believe that we find three truths for us today as believers. And they are, God calls us to walk in obedience to his word. God alone is worthy of our praise. And God is the sovereign heart changer. I want to give you a little background information about what's going on with the people here of Israel In this time in history, when King Ahab becomes king over Israel, the one thing that he wants to do, he wants to build an alliance with the neighboring country of Tyre. And he seals this alliance by marrying their princess Jezebel. Now Jezebel worshipped the Canaanite god Baal. And Ahab even allowed her to continue her worship to this foreign god. In fact, he even builds her a temple to do that for her private worship in Samaria, the capital. But you see, Jezebel was not satisfied with her private worship. She insisted that Baal become worshipped and replace the true worship of Yahweh, the true God, with her false god. And what she does she begins to have the true prophets of God pursued, persecuted, placed in prison, and killed. And this resulted in the voices of God's prophets being silenced. And the people were only hearing the false prophet and their voices speaking about who Baal was. And Israel now under the disobedient leadership of King Ahab has deceived the people into believing that it was Baal that controlled the weather. It was him that caused the rain. It was him that was responsible for the prosperity of their crops. He had led the people into worshiping a false god. 1 Kings 16 says this about Ahab. It says, He had done more evil in the sight of the Lord than any king before him. How would you like those words on your headstone at the end of your life? He had done evil. And he had led the people into doing that. Israel had become disobedient to following God's word. And they had reached the pinnacle of their idolatry. They had failed to keep the first two commandments given by Moses on Mount Sinai. He told them, he said, People, you shall not have any other gods but me. And secondly, you are not to bow down and worship false idols of any kind. This adultery, adultery, it really is in a way, but it's idolatry to God has has caused God to send his prophet Elijah to confront the people. About their sin. See the role. Of a prophet in the Old Testament. They were to be. Spokespersons for God. They were sent to admonish. And warn. Direct. Encourage. Intercede. Teach. And counsel. They were called. To bring God's word. To God's people. For them to respond to it. 1 Kings. 17. One, we find that the. Prophet Elijah just kind of shows up out of nowhere, and we really don't know a whole lot about him. We know he's a Tishbite, and we know that his name means, My God is Yahweh. And God has him appear before Ahab, speaking again on God's behalf, and he pronounces the coming drought. And he's led, Then he's led into hiding for three and a half years as he's obedient to God's word. And then he returns three and a half years later. Three and a half years of no rain and no dew. It's a long, long time. And on this second meeting with Ahab, he's called back to meet him. And Elijah tells him to go and gather all the people of Israel and meet him on Mount Carmel. Now, this would have been a big undertaking for the people because it, the northern kingdom of Israel was, had a large landmass, and most people could walk 15 to 20 miles a day, but in the heat of the day and no water around, it would have taken a lot of time for the people to gather there the and obey Ahab's command. And this brings us to our text this morning. In 1 Kings 18, 21, we find that Elijah is now standing on Mount Carmel, and he's standing before the people of Israel, and he asks them this very heart-probing question about whom they're going to serve. Is it going to be Yahweh, the true God, or is it going to be Baal? He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. See, this question really addresses the main heart issue of the people of Israel. They have become disobedient to the one true God, and then they're worshiping a false god. The people had been led in to believing that Baal brought the rain. However, now it's been three and a half years and there's no rain, and the people are suffering from a famine. The passage says that they were limping between two opinions. The word limp here means to hobble, or in this case, to dance around a commitment. The people had one foot into following God and one foot into following Baal. Their hearts were divided on whom they should serve and worship. And Elijah, as God's prophet, has come to call them to follow one or the other. He had called them to come to respond to God's word. That's what the role of a prophet was. Now, it's very interesting that the people didn't speak a word. They didn't answer Elijah. How could they? They were limping along, wavering in their commitment to nothing. They were riding the fence of indecision. And God had sent Elijah to stop their limping by turning their hearts back to the one true God and obeying his word. See, here we really see the mercy of God for his people. Even in their disobedience, God still desires to restore this promise that we find in Deuteronomy eleven thirteen 13 through 15. Maybe the people forgot about this promise And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rains that you may gather in your grain and your wines and your oil. And he will give grass in the fields to your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Kind of sounds like the words of Jesus too, doesn't it? This is a promise that was given to their forefathers. They had forgotten this because of their disobedience. And I believe that what we find in this section is the first truth in this passage that God calls us to walk in obedience to his word. You know, today in our world, you know what, idolatry is really still alive in our culture. Now, we may not worship Baal, however. There's other things that might cause us to compromise God's Word. We find ourselves living in a very self-centered culture. The culture says there's no absolute truth. We find that right and wrong is being determined by the individual. When a person, what a person believes to be right and wrong for themselves. And then we see many of these beliefs being accepted in the culture as truth. While they clearly disobey God's word, and then the church is expected to accept these cultural truths. Are they not? We hear it all the time. See, God has called the church to be the voice of truth to a dark world. But see, we today we see compromising to God's word, even in some of the mainline denominations. And it's so sad. We hear teachings that the Bible is not inspired or that it has error. We hear that there's more than one way to God, that there's no hell, there's only heaven, that everyone's going to heaven. We even see a fear sometimes of the church to really condemn the sins of society that are clearly in violation to God's word. Look at Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It was true then and it's true now. In this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, and Savior Jesus Christ. See, the church is supposed to take a stand for righteousness, a stand for His Word. That is true. You know, during a recent staff member, Pastor Andrew shared an article with us that appeared in the New York Times on April 20th of this year. And then this article, the president of Union Seminary, Serene Jones, who was a pastor, was interviewed about the... The events around surrounding Easter, when she was asked about Jesus' resurrection, she stated that those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Well, it gets worse. When asked about the crucifixion, she stated that the idea of an abusive Father God who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. I, I just couldn't believe this. When asked about the virgin birth, she, said, she stated that it was a bizarre claim. What she's really saying is she doesn't believe in God's word. Because see, if you take the deity of, of, of Jesus away, his crucifixion and resurrection, all you're left with is this self-imposed righteousness. In, in other words, we become the master and rulers of our own life. And God is powerless to change our heart because we are in control and not Him. We need to obey God's Word. When God calls us to be obedient to His Word, He does that no matter what the culture around us is saying. You see what happened to the people of Israel? They've been deceived and followed the culture which led to their sin of worshiping a false god. Really the principle here is when we obey God's word, there's blessing. For the people back then, it was rain. And when we're disobedient to God's word that leads to sin, there's consequences. For the people back then, it was the drought. And for us today, we can begin to limp like them when we're disobedient to his word. Let's move on and see how God uses the prophet Elijah to turn the people's limping into walking in obedience to him. 1 Kings 18, 27-38, we find the details of this showdown that God uses to turn Israel's heart back to him. See, Elijah is giving the people another chance to respond, and he does this by offering a contest. Now, this contest was really centered on worship. It was really to confirm to the people that their worship of Baal had been in vain because he's not real. Yahweh was the one true and only God, and he alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our worship. Well, the contest, the contest rules were given to the people by Elijah, and he reminds them that he is the only prophet of Yahweh left, and there's 450 prophets of Baal. How do you like those odds? 450 to 1. And he tells the people, said, ready two bulls, one for one for, the people, one for the prophets of Baal and one for him. The bulls are to be placed on wood, however no fire is to be set to them. And Elijah then tells the people how this contest will be determined. 1 Kings 18, 24, he says, You call on the name of your God, small g. And I will call on the name of the Lord. Anytime in the Old Testament you see the word Lord all capped, it's referring to the name of God, Yahweh. It was so holy to the Israelites that they wouldn't even write it. So they put Lord. And he says, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said it is well spoken. See, where the people had been silent to start with, with Elijah's first question about their limping, now the people answer him agreeing with the terms of this contest. Now, it had have been a really short contest if Elijah had gone first. <laughs> it really would have. But he wanted, he let the prophets of Baal go first. They placed their bull on their altar made for Baal and they began their worship. Now, why would God call Elijah for this contest to be done on Mount Carmel so far away and not in the capital of Samaria? I believe it lies in the fact that Mount Carmel was seen as kind of the center of Baal worship. It was overlooking the Jezreel Valley, which had been green and fertile, and this day it was brown and barren because of the drought the people's disobedience, they could see right in front of them the whole time that they were there. And what a better place (laughs) to show that Yahweh is a true God than by beating and defending and crushing Baal on his own turf. The passage continues. The prophets of Baal begin their worship in the morning all the way up to noontime, and they cry, Oh, Oh, Bell, answer us. They danced around the altar. Now think about this. Think about the sound and what this would look like. Four hundred and fifty prophets all dancing around and shouting. The air would have been full of dust from their feet as they kicked up because of the drought and the dry conditions. It was a chaotic event. And the worship up until noon, well, we know this. Resulted in nothing. Baal did not answer. And it was not surprising at all to Elijah. And it shouldn't be to us today. But he was just standing there waiting for his time to reveal the true God, Yahweh. Now, this next part of the contest I find a little funny. I heard people chuckle. I always kind of laugh at this a little bit. It had been a really long morning. And as noon approaches with no answer Elijah begins to taunt and mock the prophets here in 1 Kings 18, 27 through 29. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we should ever mock anybody. That's kind of, that's wrong. But I believe this mocking is not at the people. It's, he's mocking this false god, Baal. You might call, call it holy sarcasm. He begins to tell the prophets, hey, y'all shout louder. Maybe Baal can't hear you. He's asleep, and maybe he's deep in thought, busy, or relieving himself. I just think that's hilarious. (laughs) He's putting jabs at them. And this makes the false prophets even cry even louder. They begin to cut themselves with swords and knives, which was their custom in some of their worship ceremonies. They believe as the blood flow, so would the rain. Is nuts. And they continue. Noontime turns into late afternoon, and the evening sacrifice is approaching. These false prophets, their worship had resulted in nothing. There was no answer, there was no voice, and there was certainly no fire. See, Baal had been revealed as a false God, powerless to act on behalf of the people worshipped him. And in 1 Kings 18.30. Elijah calls the people to come to him. Says come near to me. And the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. That had been thrown down. And I kept reading that. And reading that. And reading that. And it struck me. There's something about that passage. He repaired the altar of the Lord. I did a little research. And found out that there had been an altar built to worship Yahweh on Mount Carmel at one time in the past. However, when the people started worshiping foreign gods, they had abandoned the true altar of God and raised up the other ones to Baal and the other people they worshiped there. You see, in the Old Testament, now get this, in the Old Testament, an altar was built for the purpose of worship to the one true God. On these altars, people brought their offerings and their sacrifices. And it was to atone for their sins. In Leviticus 1. Yes, I said Leviticus. That's why you need to read the Old Testament. Even though it might seem dry, there's truth here. You see, in Leviticus 1, it describes the burnt offering. And this offering turns away God's wrath from the sins of his people. This is why Elijah calls for the bull to be placed on the wood. See, God, through his servant Elijah, I believe what he's doing here, he's going to make a burnt offering on behalf of the people of Israel for their sins. He does this to restore the fellowship that has been broken because of their sinfulness, to restore their true worship to him because he alone is worthy See, that's the second point here I believe we see this worship contest. We've got to understand that our God today, the same is there. God is alone is worthy of our praise. Nothing else. He alone is worthy. When we worship God, we're giving him all the honor and praise that he alone is due. Through his son Jesus, we've been redeemed. We've been transformed and given a new life in him. And worship is not just about singing as so many people believe. It's about when we walk in obedience to the Word, we're worshiping Him. We worship Him with our gifts and our talents and our offerings of praise. See, God calls us to live a life of worship. Our entire life should be devoted to Him because He alone is worthy. When we gather on Sunday mornings for worship... We're blessed to be able to stand here and bring praise and adoration and worship to the Lord. And part of that freedom is because people have sacrificed for us. When we come on Sunday, we share God's truth from his word. We bring honor to his name and we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and communion. These are all forms of worship. I don't want you to miss the importance of any of them. And don't miss that when we have a call to worship on Sunday morning from the first note that is the first word that is spoken to the last amen, that is worship to our God. Don't miss any of that. When we do that corporately, there is something that happens for us as God's people that we come to celebrate Him with our hearts. And when we come to worship, we also need to prepare our hearts for the offering we're about to bring. This is what I believe that Elijah does as he begins to repair the altar in 1 Kings 18, 31 through 35. He begins to make sure this altar is acceptable and worthy to call on the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He builds in 1 Kings, uh, I think it's 18, 31 through 35. See, he builds this altar with 12 stones to remind the people that they are descendants of Jacob. And remember, Jacob, God turned his heart, he changed his name to Israel. That's what God does, he changes us. He builds this altar with those 12 stones to remind the people that they are God's people, to be called to be his own. And he takes that burnt offering and he lays it on the wood and then he digs that large trench around it. Then Elijah has the people join him in preparing the altar. He calls for four large jars of water to be applied. And he tells them to do it again. He tells them to do it again. it's a total of 12 large jars and this soaks everything. The whole offering, the bull, the wood, even fills the trench up. And Elijah stands back and he waits until the time of the evening sacrifice to begin. In 1 Kings 18.36, Elijah prays a short, simple prayer. There's no dancing. There's no yelling. He simply begins to pray. 1 Kings 18.36 O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and, and that I have done all these things at your word, at your command. See, he calls on the God of their forefathers. His prayer points to the fact that Yahweh is the only God in Israel, not Baal. And the fact that he Elijah is only a servant of the Most High God. Everything that has happened, all the power, everything has been directed by Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Elijah has just been obedient to that. 1 Kings eighteen thirty-seven 37-38, Elijah ends his prayer with these simple, simple yet powerful words. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of God fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water even in the trench. God answers the prayer immediately. And the fire consumes everything. See, God has accepted everything this burnt offering on behalf of the people, their sins are removed so he can have fellowship with him. What a powerful, merciful God that we serve. Amen? And God had done all these things so the people would know that without any doubt that Yahweh was the one true God. He wanted them to know that it was Yahweh that withheld the rain, and it is he that's going to make it come back. The sovereign God of of all has crushed the false prophet Baal. Now, every time I read this story, I look at the power that's displayed here when the fire falls on the altar, and just that power of God, but don't get caught up there's a lot a lot of times i get i got caught up on that power that's being released and it was it was awesome but if we're not careful we'll miss the wonderful display of his love and mercy for his people because they didn't deserve this they had been disobedient and had turned to another god and what he wanted to do was turn their hearts. And I believe this is the last truth. And I think it's the main point of this whole story is that God is a sovereign heart changer. He's the one who changes our heart. In 1 Kings 18, 39, we see now that the people fall to their faces, which is a posture of worship. And they proclaim with their voices, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people are now saying, Yahweh is my God. Isn't that interesting? That's the the meaning of Elijah's name. Yahweh is my God. I just think it's amazing that God was send this prophet that no one knows really a lot about. He comes out of nowhere and he uses them to turn the hearts of his people back to himself so they could proclaim once again that he was their God. And in this Old Testament story, I also believe that Elijah, his ministry points to and foreshadows Jesus. You see, God had sent Elijah to make a sacrifice to cover the sins of Israel and to turn our hearts, restoring that fellowship with him. In the New Testament, God sends one Far greater than Elijah. He sends his only son, Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice removes the sins of the world, not just a nation. His sacrifice covers our sin once and for all. We are bought with a high price. See, Jesus is the sovereign heart changer. And we need to understand that we are not sovereign over our own hearts. We are not control of our hearts. We cannot save ourselves; Only God can change our hearts. And I pray that this time this morning has done just that as we've looked at this story and we see how God in His mercy loves His people unconditionally. And He seeks to change our heart to Him that we can worship Him in spirit and truth. And in closing this morning, Maybe you're here today and you find yourself limping in your walk with Jesus. Maybe you've been riding the fence about your commitment to him. See, today is a day you can call out to the sovereign God, the heart changer, acknowledging that he is Lord of all, asking him to forgive you and committing your life to him to end your limping and to begin you to walk in obedience to him. Maybe you're here today and your faithfulness and devotion to the Lord has been weakened by the culture that's around us that's always speaking into our ear. You know, God can stir your heart afresh today. Maybe you need to ask him to help you walk more obedient to his word. Maybe to live a life that's more devoted to Him in your worship of Him. And lastly, I think this speaks to everybody here. We all have loved ones. Whether it be dear friends or family who are limping. Maybe they don't know the Lord Jesus. Or maybe they've fallen away from their faith as so many we see so many college kids doing which is just very, very hurtful in a lot of ways. It just makes me so sad. Or maybe you have friends or family members who are bound by the sins of addiction, which is such a big problem in our society today. I want you to know that the Lord our God is a sovereign heart changer. He can make a way when there seems to be no way. There's nothing impossible with him. See, his power is limitless. His purposes and plans always prevail. And he can turn the hardest of hearts. Because he is a sovereign heart changer. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for this time this morning Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're the only one that can change our hearts. Because, Lord, you are sovereign. It means you're in control of everything. And, Lord, this morning, if there's anyone here that has never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Lord, this can be the day that they stop their limping and turn to you. And if that's you this morning, you can just cry out to him said say, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. Lord, I need a Savior. God, I acknowledge that you are the Lord of all. Would you forgive me? Come in and take control of my life. And I commit to walk with you all the days of my life. Lord, we pray for believers here, maybe who have fallen prey to some of the cultural things going on. No matter what it is, Lord, would you give them your power and your strength to be obedient to your word and to worship you in spirit and truth? And Lord, we pray for our families, our loved ones, Lord, who are far from you, who may be caught in the sins of addiction and other things. Lord, we know that you see our needs. Lord, we know that you are merciful. And that you can change the hardest of hearts. So Lord, would you do that on behalf of your people here. Lord, as we lift up prayers to these families. We ask God that you would draw them into yourself. And so Lord, we thank you Lord for this time this morning. We thank you Lord for the truth of your word. In Jesus name. Amen.